This podcast is not personal financial advice. You're listening to the Aussie Firebug Podcast, the financial independence podcast for Australians. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Ask Firebug Fridays, the monthly fire Q&A where you guys get to submit your questions and I try my best to answer them. My name's Matt. I'm a country boy from regional Victoria who is on track to reach financial independence by my mid-30s. I'm riding solo today, but we have another great bunch of questions from you guys out there. First one I'm covering is talking about investing in Vanguard and leaving it alone. Do you need to know what's happening or make any changes? Then we're going to be chatting about the 4% rule. Is it still valid given the current predictions of low returns in the next decade or two in the current low interest rate environment? And the last question is going to be about UK pensions, how me and Mrs. Firebug manage them after living in London for the last two years and what our approach to them was. All right, before we get into it, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our partners at ShareSite, the number one portfolio tracking tool for Aussie investors. ShareSite makes it ridiculously simple with automatic holdings updates, comprehensive tax and performance reporting wrapped up in an easy to use, fully cloud-based system. My favorite thing about using ShareSite is how easy it makes tax returns. Simply generate your tax report at the end of the financial year and voila, you're done. And here's the best part. It's 100% free for users that have under 10 holdings. If you have over 10 holdings and want to sign up, make sure you use my link to get the first four months for free. Head over to aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site to receive this special offer. Even if you're signing up to the free plan, using that link will score you four months for free if you ever decide to own more than 10 holdings within 60 days. Finish tax time with a click of a button using ShareSite by signing up today. That's aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site for your free four months. Our first question today comes in from Ben who writes in, Hey AFB, I've been studying the pros and cons of investing in property versus shares. What I have read is confusing me. Can I simply set up an account with Vanguard, for example, and invest, say, $10,000 a year and leave it alone? Or do I need to know what's happening and make changes every so often? Ben, thanks for writing in, Ben. And what I'll do, first of all, is I'm going to put two links in the show notes. And the first one is how to buy ETFs that I wrote many years ago, but actually has a section in there because there is a difference between buying through Vanguard directly, as in the managed fund of Vanguard, versus buying what most people uh, in the FIRE community do, and that's the exchange-traded funds, and buying an ETF and setting up through a broker. So I just wanted to touch on that point because it can be, it's probably one of the most confusing parts about buying a Vanguard product or a beta shares, an IROC, whatever it is, is that just that concept of do you buy through Vanguard itself or do you buy ETFs on the ASX? So I'll link that I'll link that article in the show notes. And the second one, I just want to make sure that you've read. I wrote a, an article, The Property Versus Shares, back well, a couple of years ago now. And I'll link, that, I'll link that one for you. And you can just have a squeeze because hopefully that article is pretty straightforward and it lays out what I consider to be the pros and cons of both asset classes, which I'm a big fan of both. Uh, but they're completely different in my opinion. And they're really, you've got to be the right investor to invest in each asset class, in my opinion. Now, to the question, can you invest in Vanguard and then leave it alone, or do you need to know what's happening and make changes every so often? Now, this depends on what product you buy that that Vanguard offer or any of the other providers, the BD shares, the IROCs, what they offer. Because if you are 
making your own portfolio and you have like for our, our portfolio, for example, has an Australian component, an American component, and then a all world minus the US component. And the way that we weight each component, we have a set set weightings and the set splits we want to, at the moment, we're looking to be very high in the Australian market and then about 15% in each the US and the, the rest of the world. So as the markets move throughout your investing journey, certain sectors or certain parts of your portfolio will go down and others will go up. So then every time that we buy, every time we buy shares, we try to buy the like split of the pie that's down the lowest. So like if the US has a really bad month and the rest of the world does well and Australia does well, the odds that the US will shrink in our portfolio to be like maybe only 13% making up our portfolio. The next time we buy our $5,000 worth of shares, which is what we try to buy every single month, we will buy the US component. And then if the, the, the next month happens and the same thing happens, the US has a bad month, then we'll buy another $5,000 of US. But then it goes in swings and roundabouts and sometimes other parts of the pie um, do well and then um, other parts shrink. So if you're investing in that style, then you do need to keep an eye on your weightings because that is something that can go out of whack over the course of a couple of years and depending on how the markets go. Having said that, Vanguard do offer four diversified index ETFs, which are a complete ETF in the sense that it automatically rebalances for you. So the way that me and Mrs. Firebug do it, we've got to rebalance our portfolio ourselves, but you can actually buy a an ETF that does the rebalancing for you already. And one of the most popular is Vanguard's VDHG ETF. And they offer that at a reasonable management fee of 27 basis points. But in that, it actually does all the auto rebalancing, the diversification. It has the dividend reinvestment plan option and it hedges against the Australian dollar, I believe, or part of the portfolio does. So that is sort of an all-in-one ETF. And if you bought, if you went that route and went the all-in-one ETF rather than trying to roll your own portfolio, then it's funny that you actually don't need to do anything with that option because it's going to auto-rebalance and it's already got the diversification for you. And there's two points I want to bring up that really hammer hammer that point home. And the first one is a quote from Jack Bogle. And for those who don't know who Jack Bogle is, he was the founder and late CEO of the Vanguard Group in America. So he's since passed away, but he's one of the champions of index investing and one of the first people to really champion that idea that you don't need to pay a hedge fund um, or a management fund a lot in management fees to try to pick the stocks because there's this, the studies have already been done and the, the data is pretty conclusive that it's extremely hard to actively pick stocks and beat the market consistently over a long period of time when fees are factored in. In fact, it's almost impossible. There are a, a few outliers like your Warren Buffett's of the world that are able to do it consistently, but the odds of professionals even doing it are extremely unlikely. So the odds of everyday people like you and me out there listening that aren't professional investors, you'd have to be a bit crazy to think that you're going to outperform the market over a long period of time consistently. So that's the research of that has already been done, but Jack Bogle has a quote and it goes something like this. And this is in regards to investing, like the mantra of investing. Don't do something, just stand there, which is the complete opposite of the you know, traditional quote of don't just stand there, do nothing. But it really, I think, embodies the, the ethos of 
why index investing works and how you don't actually need to do anything with index investing because you're buying the complete market and you're letting the market do the heavy lifting over a long period of time. And the more that you meddle with your investments and you, you, you know, you try to be clever, you try to think that you're smarter than the market. It's actually been shown that that type of investing returns subpar results over the long term. And there's another point I want to bring up with this question, and that is Fidelity released a study and Fidelity is a financial services corporation in America. And they released a study discussing the performance breakdown of their accounts. And what was funny to see was the clients that did best were actually the ones that were deceased, as morbid as that is. And the second best performing set of clients forgot that they had a Fidelity account. And I'll, I'll put a link to that study or that, that article in the show notes. But it seems like the formula to beat the markets is to start an account, forget about it, then die. Now, of course, we're probably not going to forget about our accounts. It's very unlikely. And touch wood, we're not going to pass away anytime soon. But I guess I really just want to hammer home the point that the more that you try to be active with your investments, if you're going down an index, a passive style index investing approach, the less likely you are to to have the most optimal returns. The studies have been done and the data is out there. Buy and hold. If you're into this passive investing style of investments, I can't speak for all types of investing because there are other types of investing that you can do. But for passive style index investing, really what works and what's proven to work is buy and hold over a long period of time, which is actually easier said than done. If we look at last year's example of the COVID crash, I mean, look how many people panicked last year. Even There was even posts written in the Aussie Fire discussion group on Facebook, on the Reddit boards, on other financial forums, places where usually there's a lot of level-headed people. There was some posts that were very, uh, you know, raised a lot of eyebrows, I think, because people were talking about, you know, this has never happened before. This is a global pandemic. I can't believe what the government's doing. This is, you know, lockdowns and everything, which totally was true. And this is the first time that this has happened, you know, in a, in a long, long time. And maybe some things happened that was the first time that that ever happened. And that can be scary. And a lot of people did sell some of their positions, all of their positions, and sort of waited for things to calm back down. And we know looking back through history that it's actually the the rocky times and and when there's blood on the streets, they're actually the best times to buy. But it's really hard, really hard to do that, to stick to your guns and keep buying consistently when or if you're reading the news every day, you know, looking at doomsday YouTube videos and following people that do nothing but commentate on the worst things that happen in the financial markets. Like if you're absorbing all that content, it starts to play tricks in your brain. And it's happened to me before. Uh, it's not like we sold out last year or anything, but it is, I've always said that investing is more psychological than it is anything else. And like that fidelity study just goes to show, it's actually the investors that do nothing in that in that study they were dead that managed to outperform a lot of other active investors and people that you know think that they can they can pick the winners. So to wrap things up, Ben, I would say that you don't need to know what's happening and you don't need to make changes if you're going the all-in-one portfolio like the that Vanguard VDHG account. If you're rolling your own, then I would say rebalancing is the thing that you need to look at and understand. 
And I'll just make the point that it is true that you don't need to do anything and you don't need to make any changes, but you really should understand how index investing works and why it works. That is one thing I I will say that you can't just buy. I guess you could, but it, it would be hard mentally to just buy, keep buying VDHG, for example, and then not really know the the strategy behind index investing and then see how you go mentally when there is another crash because there's always going to be another crash that COVID that happened last year a crash of that magnitude is not a once-off it will happen again and again that's just the nature of the markets so just understand why you invest the way that you do and why you've chosen that investment vehicle and be rock solid because when your psychology is tested you should stick to your guns and continue the plan throughout that crash. Okay, our second question comes in from Andrew, who writes in, Hi, loving your website. I'm 46 with a family of four and have been chipping away at fire for some time, looking close to my goals, but came across this article. Given the risk of a bear market in the next decade, what do you think about the safety net of the higher benchmark of the 3% rule? Cheers, Andrew. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the article that Andrew's linked in, and it's talking about how to invest for fire in any market. And part of that article is talking about changing the 4% rule to the 3% rule. And the article brings up some some good points about the, the original study. It was only for a retirement period of 30 years, where a lot of people in fire want to you know be in retirement for longer than 30 years. And it brings up some other good points. Okay. So Basically, this comes down to your risk tolerance. And I have often, I've seen a few people online talk about retiring on a 3% or running the numbers for retirement on a 3% rule or even a 2.5% rule. And to be honest, I, I've always even thought of the 4% rule as being pretty conservative. And I'll go into the reason why I think that in a second, but the first point I want to bring up, or and I'm going to put another link in the show notes for this as well. I listened to a podcast earlier this year with Ben Felix, who has a very popular YouTube channel, the Ben Felix YouTube channel. He, I think he's a, a fund manager, I believe in Canada, or it could be the US. Anyway, he's really popular on YouTube. I really like his videos, very data-driven guy and has a lot of really interesting analysis. So he had a guest on this year called William Bengen who is actually the creator of the 4% rule. And in that podcast, I'm not going to go into the the nuts and bolts of it, but Will Bengen has actually increased the 4% rule to the 5% rule given the current financial environment. So he hasn't actually decreased it. He now says that most people will be able to retire on a 5% withdrawal rate as opposed to a 4%, which I found really, really interesting. And as I said, I'll put a link to that podcast. It's actually on YouTube. And if you want to know, like he's got the data and he's got studies to show why he's increased it from 4 to 5%. So go listen to it if you're interested, because I definitely cannot explain it as well as he can. But I found that really interesting because I'd always thought that 4% was pretty conservative anyway. And there's other things that I want to touch on with this question. And the main one is that there's two really main points, but the main one is the odds of everyone out there listening and everyone in the fire community never making any money ever again once they're retired, especially if you're retiring, you know, if you're lucky enough to do it in your 20s, your 30s, or your 40s, 
are extremely unlikely, extremely low. I know that we want to plan to never have to make a single dollar ever again. And the math and the modeling do support that. Like that's what we're aiming for. We, we work off the 4% rule. Technically, we never want to have to earn money ever again. That's full financial independence. Like I get it. But the reality is I've never met anyone that doesn't go into a passion project or start working because they want to and somehow, some way, some form, it ends up making a little bit of money. And even if you make a little bit of money in that job or you start a business or you do a hobby, whatever it is, it can change the modeling substantially. Like if you're only making, and it all comes down to how much you're spending, of course, obviously, but most people in the fire community, unless you're aiming for high fire, it, uh, you know, we live pretty, we live pretty simple lives, happy lives, great lives, actually incredibly lavish lives if you compare us to a lot of other countries. But by Australian middle-class standards, we are aiming to live relatively simple lives. So you shouldn't be spending a obscene amount of money anyway. So if you just make $10,000 from a hobby or something that you love doing, which honestly, I don't think would be you know that hard to do. First of all, you're not going to be paying any tax on that first $10,000. So you get a lot, a lot more bang for your buck by earning a, a little bit of money or earning up to the, the tax-free threshold than you do, you know, we all know the dollar doesn't go quite as far as you start earning a lot of money in the higher tax brackets. So even if you do earn that little bit of money, you really, if you've built up your portfolio based on the 4% rule, which is what the majority of people are doing. And actually just on that, I was looking at the statistics for the Aussie fire survey that we ran earlier this year and over 70% of people, like the vast majority of the community are still using that 4% rule, which was interesting to see, but there was actually a fair amount of people going below the 4%, like more than I thought would have chosen to go below the 4%. So that was also interesting. But if you're supplementing your portfolio, even by a little bit, like a few thousand dollars here or there, it completely, like it changes the modeling completely. And I just really think that the odds of us and everyone out there listening, earning no money ever again for the next 50 years, once we've hit financial independence based on the 4% rule are extremely, extremely unlikely. And and that's why, that's a reason that I've always thought the 4% rule is pretty conservative because we probably, there will be a little bit of money trickling in anyway. Not going to rely on it, but the odds of that happening are quite high. And the other reason that I thought the 4% rule is even pretty conservative uh, in my estimation as well is if you actually look at the Trinity study and the results, they tested for a 40-year retirement horizon and found that it's a 92% probability that the 4% rule holds up. So if you're withdrawing 4% of your portfolio across a 40-year time horizon, 92% of the years that they study for, that they did the modeling for, were successful. Now that's pretty bloody good in my opinion, a 90% chance of of survival, your portfolio, you know, surviving. And it's not like it's going to be all or nothing. Like if your retirement is 40, 50, 60 years, it's going to be a pretty slow burn. So if you have a big crash at the start of your retirement, which is the worst possible scenario, if you have a crash between the first three to five years of you um, retiring, that throws out the modeling the most uh, if there is a crash later on, like 10, 15, 20 years down the track, it doesn't matter as much as it does in the first couple of years. So if that does happen, like- it's not like 
we are sitting on the sidelines, you know, ripping out our hair saying, oh my God, the worst possible scenario happened. Like I can't do anything about it. There's plenty of things we can do about it. I've already spoken about the the odds of people not earning a single dollar in retirement are extremely unlikely. But what about cutting expenses down? Like unless you are living an absolute bare bones or going for uh, very lean fire, the lean fire approach, I, I think without knowing you know everyone's situation, but I would like to think there that there is still a lot of fat to cut off the budget or off the expenses, sorry, for most people in Australia that are pursuing fire. Like they, we have so many other options and it's going to be 40, 50, you know, plus years, whatever the retirement period is, that you can make these changes. It's not like it, it either succeeds or it fails and you can't intervene at any step of the way. So I just feel like there are a lot of options available to us pursuing fire and I'm going to be still sticking to the 4% rule, but the the guy that created the rule has now bumped it up to 5%. So I would be, you know, I'd be pretty comfortable if, if I met someone and they'd have their, their modeling around the 5% rule even, I'd be like, yeah, that's, you know, that's doable. The guy that created it says it's now 5%. So I can understand that. And everyone's different. Everyone has different risk tolerances. I get it. But I just think it's up to you, of course, but the 4% rule is what we still will be sticking with even though there are those studies out there predicting lower returns for the next decade or two. Um, I have read a few of those and I am aware of those. But uh, as I said, I think we've got options and the odds of us never earning any money again are pretty unlikely. So I'm sticking with the 4% rule and that's my take on it. And our last user question comes in from Dan, who writes in, Hi, AFB. I was wondering how you and Mrs. Firebug were managing your super whilst in the UK. The Mrs. and I spent two years living and working in the UK, like a lot of Aussies. We contributed to a UK pension while we were there, as it was the default for the company I was working with, and only found out later that we could opt out. When we returned home last year, we tried transferring our pension to our Aussie super. However, we were told that we couldn't due to a recent change in UK legislation. Have you heard of any workarounds on this? Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan, for writing in. And this one kills me a little bit because it is something that happened to me as well, but it's not maybe not as bad as yourself. Uh, for those that don't know me and the missus, we spent 2019 2020 in London working and living over there. And Mrs. Firebug was actually on it more than I was, but she opted out of the UK pension, which it depends obviously on your situation, on what your goals are, what you want to achieve and everything like that. But what we did, we we made the decision to not use the UK pension system, which meant that we couldn't get tax benefits, like similar to super here, right? If you salary sacrifice in super in Australia, you're not going to be paying as much tax. It's going to lower your taxable income. That is really good. You can do a similar thing in the UK and it gets put into your UK pension. And that is really good. But the issue is, and as you found out, Dan, and, and is what we found out as well, the issue is that you can't then, not only you can't get that money when you leave the country and uh, you come back to Australia. So that sucks that you can't even do that. But what, what's even worse, and this is so, I don't know what law changed, but I did read about it, obviously, because we ran into the same thing. You can't even transfer it to your super fund in Australia until I believe it's your preservation age. So it's going to be 60 for us, which I just thought was absolutely ridiculous. So now I've got a little pot 
in the UK sitting there that I can't reach. I'm not even in the country, I'm not a tax resident. I'm not a citizen or anything like that. And I can't get that money. I, I, I just, I feel like that's absolutely ridiculous. And hopefully the legislation changes some point in the next 30 years before I get to my preservation age that I can at least consolidate it into my super fund in Australia. So to answer your question, I don't believe there is a workaround for this because I actually put it in the Aussie Fire discussion group and a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me, yeah, basically came back to the same conclusion that because of those legislation changes, you couldn't get it and you're going to have to wait till you turn 60 basically, which is a major bummer, but I just wanted to, I included this question because if there's anyone out there that is thinking about working in the UK, yes, you can save money by opening a pension account over there and like having having it work similar to super over here, but just be aware that you can't get that until your preservation age as well. And you can't even consolidate it into your super fund, which is just outrageous. So whether or not you want to just pay extra taxes to get that money out is up to you. But that is what me and Mrs. Firebug did, except I didn't, I stuffed it up at the last job that I got. Uh, It's a long story, but I was kicking myself for it because I got my bonus paid out and I got like a decent amount of the bonus got sucked into that UK pension. And then I, I realized that it was there and I was like, oh my God, I forgot to opt out. And um, yeah, so I, I still include that in our overall you know, wealth because it's still there and it, you know, it is my money, but it just sucks that I can't get to it and I can't consolidate it into my super fund. But it is what it is. And hey, if anyone is out there listening that does know a way around it, another reason I included this question please let me know please comment on the article or hit me up in the fire discussion group all right that is it guys that is the last question for today hope you guys have a good day and enjoy your weekend I'll see you on the next episode catch ya thanks for listening to another episode for all the show notes and a full transcription of today's episode head over to aussiefirebug.com never miss another episode by subscribing to Spotify iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts This podcast is for educational purposes only. Nothing in this episode should be taken as personal financial advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decision.